Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So get this. Donald Trump still thinks he can win the 2020 election. The lead starts right now. Yet another stunning phone call from Donald Trump. He's reportedly still trying to overturn the last presidential election. It's this very kind of behavior that has a criminal investigation heating up in Georgia with prosecutors now going after fake electors who were part of an alleged conspiracy to undermine American democracy. Plus, lashing out, a witness interviewed by the January 6th committee goes on an extremist rant. Hear what the former Trump White House aide said after an abrupt end to his closed-door testimony, and the United Kingdom, generally known to be prim and proper, but this time it seems like it could be a drag-out fight to be the UK's next prime minister. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start in the politics lead on Capitol Hill. Members of the January 6th committee are preparing for tomorrow's primetime hearing. The hearing is expected to cover the actions, or lack thereof, of former President Trump during the three-plus hours that rioters were storming the Capitol and the president's activities were unknown. But as committee members try to get to the bottom of the past attempt to steal the election, our democracy remains under attack by the same forces. Let's start in Wisconsin. CNN affiliate WISN reports that Donald Trump called the top lawmaker in the Wisconsin State Assembly, Republican Robin Voss, and asked Voss to overturn the state's 2020 election results. When did that call happen? That call happened last week. Last week. Donald Trump is still trying to overturn the election results from almost two years ago. Listen to how Voss describes the call. He makes his case, which I respect. Um, He would like us to do something different in Wisconsin. I explained that it's not allowed under the Constitution. Trump then went on social media, of course, and attacked Voss. Let's go to Arizona now. In Arizona late last night, the state's Republican Party censured its Republican House Speaker, Rusty Bowers, because Rusty Bowers testified factually before the January 6th committee last month and said that he told Trump he would not participate in Trump's fake electors scheme. I said, what would you have me do? And he said, "Uh, just do it and let the court sort it out. You are asking me to do something that is counter to my oath when I swore to the Constitution to uphold it. I will not break my oath. The chair of the Arizona State Republican Committee, Kelly Ward, tweeted about Bauer saying, quote, he is no longer a Republican in good standing and we call on Republicans to replace him at the ballot box, unquote. Ward, we should note, also served as a fake elector in Arizona for Donald Trump. She and her husband have both been subpoenaed in the federal probe into the fraudulent elector scheme, though the ward's attorneys say their actions are protected by the First Amendment. And then let's hop over to Maryland, where last night CNN projected Maryland state lawmaker Dan Cox would be the winner of the Republican primary in the state's governor's race. Cox was and remains 
a big disseminator of Trump's election lies. He tweeted on January 6, while rioters were actively breaching the Capitol perimeter, quote, Pence is a traitor. Pence is a traitor. That's the Republican gubernatorial nominee in Maryland. Extremist ideologies abound today. Audio circulating from a former Trump White House aide who ranted about his meeting with the January 6th committee yesterday. The aide, Garrett Ziegler, went on a live stream suggesting that the January 6th investigation is an attempt to go after white Christians. They're Bolsheviks, so they probably do hate the American founders and most white people in general. This is a Bolshevistic anti-white campaign. If you can't see that, your eyes are freaking closed. And so they see me as a, uh, a, a young Christian who they can try to basically scare, right? A Bolshevist anti-white campaign going against Christians. Mask off. Now, it might be tempting to compare Donald Trump to Shoichi Yokoi, the Japanese sergeant, discover hiding in the jungles of Guam in 1972, 27 years after World War II had ended, mistakenly of the belief that World War II was still going on, that the Japanese had not lost. But Yokoi was just one man. Donald Trump has an army of similarly deluded and ill-informed zealots, and they continue to fight for that corrupt cause. Lawmakers, party chairs, former White House aides, still spreading Trump's lies. And they aren't even just saying it. Many of them are campaigning on it and winning Republican primaries on it, even as they fight to undo the country's election laws today, right now. The clear and present threat to American democracy continues. We start our coverage with Ryan Nobles. He's on Capitol Hill. He's tracking the two big developments in the threat to democracy today. First, the January 6th committee preparing for its big primetime hearing tomorrow. And second, developments in the Georgia fake electors probe, with a judge today ordering former Trump advisor Rudy Giuliani to testify before a grand jury. One text exchange. That is the sum total of what the Secret Service handed over to the January 6th select committee, leaving the committee with even more questions about what the agency is up to. You're asking the question that we're asking. We're trying to determine... Uh, where those texts are and whether they can be recovered and retrieved. The Secret Service says their agents don't typically text as part of their job, but they have yet to give a definitive answer about where texts from January 5th and January 6th may have gone. Messages the DHS Inspector General believes were deleted during a device upgrade program. There's a a lot more questions uh, to to answer, um, but we have a responsibility to tell the truth and to chase the facts, and that's exactly what we plan to do in this regard, as well as our general oversight over uh, the executive department. Meanwhile, Secret Service has started complying with the committee's subpoena, handing over thousands of documents, including radio traffic and emails. We also need to find out what technologically is possible uh, to recover Um, all of the communications uh, between the Secret Service and others uh, on that on the 5th and on the 6th in particular, but not just those days. As the agency faces a credibility crisis, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who oversees their work, promised they would comply with the investigation. The Secret Service uh, remains committed to cooperating fully with the committee. The migration was planned uh, well before January 2021. I think the facts uh, will um, be disclosed 
and we will um, address the facts as they are learned. The Secret Service and what they witnessed on January 6 could be a key part of what the committee hopes to uncover in their primetime hearing, aimed at showing what Donald Trump was and more importantly was not doing. The mob was raging at the Capitol by hearing from people who were in the White House, people who were close to the president, um, and also you know people who had insight into the the actions that were going on, you know, in the variety of ways um, that they were trying to control the violence. All of this as the investigation by the Fulton County District Attorney ramps up. A judge ordering Trump's former lawyer Rudy Giuliani to appear before the grand jury on August 9th. At the same time, Fonnie Willis sends target letters to the 16 Georgia Republicans that were involved in the plot to submit a fake set of electors to Congress. A sign that her probe into the attempts to stand in the way of the certification of the election is expanding. And there will be a bit of a wrinkle to Thursday night's hearing. The committee chairman, Benny Thompson, did test positive for COVID earlier this week, meaning he won't be able to be in the room with his fellow members. But the committee saying today that Chairman Thompson will still be a part of the proceedings. Jake, he plans to chair the hearing virtually. All right, Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. The January 6th committee is sharing the names of two of the witnesses who are expected to testify tomorrow. CNN's Kristen Holmes is tracking who they are and what they might reveal. Matthew Pottinger and Sarah Matthews, two former Trump White House officials who resigned after the deadly Capitol attack on January 6th. Tomorrow, testifying publicly. The president started talking about the rally. After talking to the committee behind closed doors. One of my staff brought me a printout uh, of a uh, tweet uh, by the president. And the tweet uh, said something to the effect that uh, Mike Pence, the vice president, didn't have the courage um, to to do what he what should have been done. Um, I uh, I read that tweet. Uh, and uh, made a decision at that moment to resign. Uh, That's where I knew that I was leaving that day uh, once I read that tweet. Pottinger, former deputy national security advisor, served under Trump for three years. The former journalist and Marine was brought into the White House as a top Asia advisor by Michael Flynn, who he worked for in the military. According to the New York Times, Pottinger told the committee he alerted Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, the National Guard had still not arrived at the Capitol on January 6th. Former Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Matthews was one of several White House aides calling for Trump to condemn the violence on January 6th. A source tells CNN his inaction led to her resignation that night. He said um, that we could make the rhinos do the right thing, is the way he phrased it. And... um, no one spoke up initially because I think everyone was trying to process what that he meant by that. Now she will testify about what she experienced in the White House that day. It was clear that it was escalating and escalating quickly. So then when that tweet, the Mike Pence tweet um, was sent out, um, I remember us saying that that was the last thing that needed to be tweeted at that moment. The situation was already bad. And so it felt like he was pouring gasoline on the fire by tweeting that. The Kent State graduate has spent her adult life working in Republican politics, spending her college summers interning for Ohio Senator Rob Portman, then Speaker of the House John Boehner, and helping with the 2016 Republican convention. Joining Trump's re-election campaign before being brought over to the White House by Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany.
And Jake, those two witnesses, along with former White House counsel Pat Cipollone, whose video testimony we anticipate seeing large portions of tomorrow, they're really going to help shape the focus of that hearing. What was going on behind the scenes at the White House during that 187 minutes when Trump was not acting as that violence was unfolding? Jake? All right. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now is Dana Nessel. She is the attorney general of the state of Michigan. Attorney General Nessel, thanks for joining us. The election probe in Georgia is heating up. Rudy Giuliani is being ordered to testify before the grand jury. Prosecutors have also told all 16 of the fake electors in Georgia that they're targets in the criminal probe. I I know that's not your case, but as somebody who knows about this kind of prosecution and and you had your own fake electors in Michigan, uh, where do you see this probe likely going? I'm not hearing your audio is not working. Uh, Let's see if we can get that back up and running. All right, you know what? We're going to take a quick break. Uh, We're going to fix her little glitch there, and then we'll continue the interview. By the way, we will carry tomorrow's evening, tomorrow evening's January 6th committee hearing live right here. Uh, Join me for special coverage starting at 7 o'clock Eastern, 7 p.m. Eastern on CNN. We'll be right back. We're back with Dana Nessel. She is the Attorney General of Michigan, and she has fixed her computer. Attorney General Nessel, I was just asking about the election probe in Georgia. Uh, Just to remind our viewers, prosecutors have told all 16 of Trump's fake electors they're targets in a criminal probe. This is not your case, as I know. It's a different state. But as an expert in these matters, as somebody who has your own slate of fake electors in Michigan, where do you see this probe going? Uh, Well, Jake, this isn't exactly an Agatha Christie novel where you have to skip to the end to find out, you know, who did it. I mean, we know who did it. These people... Um, committed their crimes in broad daylight, uh, and they did so at the encouragement of Donald Trump and, and, and his campaign. I mean, this was an illegal attempt to overthrow uh, the election at all costs. And, and, and what we've seen is in obvious cases like this, we know who the false slate of electors are, right? I mean, they're plainly listed. Um, most of them did it in public uh, or they admitted to it. Um, but the Trump made me do it defense is not viable. We've seen that with the federal defendants uh, that are now in prison. And, you know, th- those people have lost everything. They've lost their their families, their jobs, their freedom, all uh, based on these false claims made by the president of the United States uh, that he knew were false. So, yeah, I see those cases moving forward and I do see people getting charged. So let's talk about the same thing going on in your state, because we have video of a group of fake electors in Michigan trying to deliver their own electoral votes in December 2020. Uh, Are we going to see an investigation similar to Georgia's election probe uh, in Michigan? Well, the federal authorities have made it clear that they're investigating. Um, In fact, some of the false electors themselves uh, have indicated publicly that federal authorities have reached out to them, have interviewed them. Um, and we've seen different things, you know, starting to emerge are these defenses of, I didn't know what I was signing, uh, or I only saw the second page and I only signed my name and I didn't know what they were going to use it for. But as we saw during the January 6th committee hearings, um, the former chair of the Republican party in Michigan said that she herself, uh, was, you know, floored by what these individuals were preparing to do and how they were talking about hiding out. Uh, over the course uh, of the night in the uh, state capitol so that they could 
barge into the Senate, which is where you have to actually vote in order to count as a, as an elector. Um, you know, so there's an overwhelming amount of evidence. I think it's going to be very instructive to us what we see presented during the hearing tomorrow. Um, but these these cases aren't uh, exactly hard to prove. It's just a matter of whether or not uh, jurors are willing to buy the defense that all of this was okay because they were encouraged to commit these crimes at the behest of the president. So, you, but you're not going to launch an investigation or prosecute these fake electors. You're going to let the federal government do it. Is that is that what I'm to understand? Well, I did refer our case to uh, the federal authorities quite some time ago, and I did that uh, because clearly there was this ongoing conspiracy that involved not just a couple, but seven different states with a false set of electors. Uh, And I thought it best at that time for one investigation to be coordinated by the federal authorities uh, to look into all of this. Because obviously there was a conspiracy. Obviously there was this massive coordinated attempt and we've seen that play out during the course of the committee hearings. Now I haven't ruled out charging myself, but do I expect that uh, you know the DOJ is gonna move forward on these cases? I do. Michigan's primary is less than two weeks away, August 2nd. Are you taking any precautions ahead of election day to protect everyone's votes? Absolutely we are and in fact, Our department has been working hand in hand uh, with the Clerks Association, and we've been giving presentations and making people feel assured that they are going to be safe and protected. We're giving, uh, my department is giving advice uh, to those clerks as to what to do in a wide array of circumstances. And we're gonna be sending out information to all the police departments, just as we did in 2020, whether these are local, county, or state police, um, as to how to handle any disturbances or disruptions at the polls. All right, Attorney General Dana Nessel, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Also in our politics lead today, President Biden announcing new executive actions on climate change earlier today, taking steps to try to boost alternative energy production and increase funding for communities currently facing extreme heat. This move comes after Biden's legislative attempts to address the crisis thank you, thank you, thank were you. roasted by West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. And as a punishing heat wave is gripping much of the United States and Europe, but as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, the president is not yet declaring a national climate emergency, which is a step many Democrats and environmental advocates say is desperately needed. This is an emergency, an emergency, and I will, I will look at it that way. President Biden taking new steps today to address the climate crisis, turning to his executive authority after Congress stymied his far more ambitious plans to try to combat global warming. And I'll say it again loud and clear. As president, I'll use my executive powers to combat climate, the climate crisis in the absence of congressional action. Standing beneath the blistering sun, the president stopped short of declaring a national climate emergency, for now at least, as he visited a Massachusetts plant that helps connect offshore wind farms to the power grid. The plant stands outside the town of Somerset, once the largest coal-powered electricity plant in the Northeast but now makes power cables essential to capturing the wind energy. I've been saying this for three years. I think jobs. Climate change, I think jobs. The president voiced his frustration at Congress without specifically mentioning Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who effectively torpedoed broader legislation, part of the Build Back Better economic agenda, citing concerns of rising inflation. 
The White House says today's executive actions would create a wind energy area in the Gulf of Mexico, covering 700,000 acres with potential to power more than 3 million homes, and target $2.3 billion in funding for communities most affected by the scorching heat, including providing cooling centers and air conditioning to low-income Americans. These modest steps are the first of many, officials said, as Biden seeks to take the reins of the climate crisis in hopes of showing the world the U.S. is still serious about meeting its goals. Let me be clear. Climate change is an emergency. And in the coming weeks, I'm going to use the power I have as president to turn these words into formal, official government actions through the appropriate proclamations, executive orders, and regulatory power that a president possesses. So the president there just walking right up to the edge of that national climate emergency. You may ask, what is the difference? Is it simply semantics or is it more? It actually is more. Declaring a formal emergency would open the door to more funding and essentially clear away some of the bureaucratic red tape and allow the White House to do much more addressing climate. Jake, it would also send a signal to the rest of the world that the U.S. is still uh, focused on climate change. There are questions, of course, after the lack of action in Congress. So clearly the White House saying this is the first step of many. The question is, will anything in Congress ever move? We're now three and a half months before the midterm elections. Jeff Zaleny in Somerset, Massachusetts. Thanks. Let's bring in CNN senior political commentator and former uh, Obama senior advisor, David Axelrod. So David, these executive actions fall short of the legislative package that Senate Democrats were hoping to get passed. Um, Senator uh, Jeff Merkley of Oregon tweeted this. Inaction isn't an option. Climate chaos is an emergency, and the president should declare a national climate emergency and pursue bold climate action. Now, I feel like I've seen this movie before. The president is, we're told the president's going to do something, and it might even be super bold step A, and then he doesn't do super bold step A, uh, and he ends up looking cautious. And I just sit here thinking, why is this? This White House does seem kind of cautious. Well, I think it reflects him. I mean, he is a institutionalist and he doesn't move, uh, you know, precipitously. That, that, is his, that is his nature. I think they do create a problem for themselves, though. The, the expectations game has been one that has, has tripped them up throughout, uh, including from the beginning, this notion that with a 50-50 Senate and a barely and a, and a closely divided House that you were going to be able to do things of Rose, Rooseveltian uh, magnitude, it, I think was uh, problematic because the fact is he's gotten a lot of things done. The Obama administration would have loved to have had that gun bill that he signed, w- would have loved to have uh, had uh, the infrastructure, the infrastructure bill, bill yeah. that he signed. If he gets the prescription drug uh, negotiation power for Medicare, that was something Democrats have been talking about for 20 years. But everything seems smaller because the expectations were set uh, perhaps unrealistically high. And the same is true on some of these executive actions. But I don't know what his reasoning is behind not declaring an emergency now. And I would only say if he's going to do it, get there quickly. Don't 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 dither. Do it. I mean, but it's like the entire world is on fire right now. It seems yeah. like this would be if you're if you actually think it is a climate emergency and his language suggests that he, he does think that, uh, why wouldn't he? I mean, I don't, it just, it, Jeff Because I'm sure it. that there are policy discussions within the White House about what the ramifications of each step would be. Uh, but uh, again, it, don't, don't get pushed there. Uh, if you're going to go there, go there and make that announcement pers- uh, quickly. So President Biden's job approval rating is at 38 percent. 
according to CNN's recent poll, with the midterm elections uh, approaching. That's, that's pretty low. Yes. That's pretty low. Yes. Um, one thing that's very interesting is that Biden has these horrible approval ratings, and yet the generic ballot, would you rather vote for a Democrat or Republican in the midterm elections coming up, uh, is pretty divided. Yes. And, and in fact, Democrats were behind in May. Democrats made some progress. And now it's even. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's really un, it's sort of unprecedented. There's always been a close link between the president's approval rating and the performance of the party in midterm uh, elections. What I make of it is that uh, this decision, the Dobbs decision of the court... Uh, overturning Roe v. Wade. O- overturning Roe v. Wade. The, the, gun, the, uh, the mass shootings that we saw... Uh, the election denialism, the victories in primaries, such as the one in Maryland yesterday, of people who have rather extreme positions on the Republican side on these, have all created some doubt among uh, uh, independent voters in particular about the Republican Party. Six months ago, Jake, independent voters were saying, gee, the Democratic Party is tacking too far left. I think they're out of touch and so on. And now I think that discussion uh, is, is, is touching the Republicans because of all of this. And that is the hope. The hope for Democrats, uh, with all of these atmospherics working against them, in, inflation, supply chains, everything working against them, the hope for uh, Democrats is Republicans and Trump and the notion that the Republican Party has become too extreme. So former Jeb Bush advisor Tim Miller, he has been recommending for about a year, he's very anti-Trump, the Democrats should be using wedge issues against Republicans the way that Republicans generally effectively do when they control the House and Senate against Democrats. An example came yesterday, Miller said, uh, when Democrats acted in the House to codify, make the law of the land, the uh, same-sex marriage uh, legalization, uh, which Ted Cruz and others have said they think that 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 Supreme Court decision should be overturned as well. Uh, 47 Republicans in the House voted for it, which is a lot of Republicans, even though obviously yes. more voted against it. 157 Republicans voted against it. Now the U.S. Senate, they're trying to see if there are enough Senate uh, Republicans to vote for it. Do you think that's an effective strategy? Well, I do. I mean, I think, again, uh, for Democrats, uh, painting the portrait of a Republican Party that has gone way off to the right and that is so consumed by those uh, issues that they're not really focused on inflation and the day-to-day issues that touching people's lives. I think that's the best argument uh, that Democrats have going into the fall. I think they should campaign on some of the accomplishments that have been uh, belittled that are really quite important of Biden's. But it's really about making this a choice. And that's the choice that they have to paint. So, yes, I I do agree with that. The interesting strategic question for Schumer is if you put it on the floor, does it give some Republicans a chance to get well? Does it, you know, you remember Mitch McConnell uh, joined Republicans to vote for the compromise gun bill. My view was he did that because he understood the party was looking, tacking too far to the right. Suburban voters were beginning to drift. He wanted to signify that there was a moderate uh, or a more moderate group in the Republican Party. And that is the case here. But uh, on the merits, you know, I hope they do vote on it. Um, There was a New York Times poll, I believe it was last week, uh, showing that most Republicans did not want Trump to run. Most Democrats don't want President Biden to run for re-election. And the number one concern was his age. I think he's 79 right now. Yeah, he'll be 80 in December. And and he is the oldest president in the history of the United States. What do you make of that? Listen, I I do think that uh, that is a concern. And I think it'd be foolish not to say 
It's not if he ran again, he'd be 82 when he got elected. He'd be closer to 90 than 80 at the end of that, uh, at, at the end of that term. I think that he has uh, a body of accomplishment that is pretty significant, starting with the fact that he defeated Donald Trump at a very fraught time in our history, but the other things uh, that I mentioned. But this isn't like other presidents. Other presidents might, Barack Obama was at 38 in the summer of 2011, uh, but he also was 30 years younger. And that does make a difference. And people will consider that. And that is something that he has to uh, evaluate as he decides whether he's actually going to go forward and run again. But it does sound like you're suggesting, I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth, but it does sound like you're suggesting, hey, President Biden, having a successful one term with these accomplishments and getting Donald Trump out of the White House is a nice legacy. It is a nice legacy. And look, I'm not going to tell, no one should tell him what to do. And honestly, Jake, if he decides to run, he'll be the Democratic nominee. The idea that there'll be a a successful primary challenge or even a serious one, I think, is fantasy. Uh, But the question is whether it's wise and whether that's what he feels is best for the country, for him. Uh, You know, he may feel he's the only guy who can beat Donald Trump. Uh, I'm not sure that Donald Trump's on an upward uh, scheme here. So, uh, but, but he, that, that is a decision Joe Biden's going to have to make. David Axelrod, always great to see you. Thanks great so much. Great to see you, Jay. Russia vowing to go after more parts of Ukraine. Why it now says Putin's war will have to expand. This is CNN gets a look at how Ukraine's major industries are struggling to stay in operation. Stay with us. In our world lead now, Elena Zelenska, the first lady of Ukraine, made an urgent appeal to the U.S. Congress today. Take a listen. I'm asking for air defense systems in order for rockets not to be killed, not to kill children in their strollers, in order for rockets not to destroy children's rooms and kill entire families. Zelenska's plea came just hours after the Pentagon announced more weapons assistance to Ukraine, including four more huge rocket launchers. As Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov warns, the new weapons will push Russia to steal even more of Ukraine's territory. CNN's Ivan Watson is at a steel plant in southern Ukraine, where the country's industry is barely holding on. This is the Arsenalmetall Mining and Steelworks. The heat being generated from this blast furnace, we can feel it here. It's more than 2,100 degrees Celsius. This is an enormous industrial plant that employs more than 26,000 people. And before the war, produced more than 6 million tons of steel a year. But the Ukrainian government accuses Russia of waging a hybrid military and economic war on this country, and it's put this entire plant in jeopardy. This cavernous facility is now largely inactive. In fact, since the Russian invasion, the company has turned off three of the factory's blast furnaces. And turning these things off isn't like flipping a light switch. It is a long procedure. It takes about a week. As one employee here puts it, it's like trying to extinguish the heart of an active volcano. This steelworks is only operating at about 30% capacity right now. Some 2,000 of its employees are now serving in the Ukrainian armed forces. At least 14 of them are believed to have been killed in the fighting. The war has made a mess of the company's supply chain and the front lines, they're only about 50 kilometers, some 30 miles away from this facility. And despite all of these risks and threats, 
the management of this company vows to try to remain operational. Ivan Watson, CNN, Krivirich, Ukraine. Now, thanks to Ivan Watson for that report. And then there were two. The race to succeed Boris Johnson as British Prime Minister narrows, and it's turning into quite the fight. Stay with us. The pop culture lead, a can't-miss moment from the British Parliament today as outgoing Prime Minister Boris Johnson quoted none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger in his goodbye speech. I want to thank everybody here and hasta la vista, baby. Thank you. All right, let's see if it matches the nuance and atmosphere of the original. Hasta la vista, baby. Mm. That brings us to our world lead, though, and the obvious question, who's next? CNN's Bianca Nobilo looks at the two finalists in the fight to be the next British prime minister. Knives out, bitter rivalries. The battle for Britain's prime minister is now in the knockout round. First up, the establishment candidate, Rishi Sunak. Slick, some say too slick, former chancellor. Worked in investment banking, Oxford and Stanford educated, fiscal conservative, calling tax cut promises. It's a fairy tale. In the other corner, hawkish foreign secretary Liz Truss, who says that she'll call Putin out directly. Remainer turned Brexiteer, libertarian, pro-tax cuts, sometimes gaff prone. In December, I'll be in Beijing opening up new pork markets. Held several high-profile government positions and claims... I am ready to be Prime Minister from day one. It's been a dizzying fortnight in British politics. First, the resignation of Boris Johnson... But them's the brakes. ...triggering a leadership contest in which candidates pounded each other. Ten days of knockouts and dropouts as Conservative members of Parliament voted in five rounds, shrinking a field of 11 potential Prime Ministers to two, choosing not just a leader of their party, but a Prime Minister too. The public punch-up within the Tory party has been nothing but damaging. Risha, you have raised taxes to the highest level in 70 years. I'll cut this tax, that tax and another tax, and it will all be okay. But you know what? It won't. I have been on the front line. I've been on the front line in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's not just wrong, it's dangerous. It is a fight to the death. It's a political death match. And we're now into the final two. Uh, And given how nasty it's been so far, I think we can only expect it to get nastier. Who wins the last round will be up to less than 200,000 Conservative Party members. Rishi Sunak is the clear favourite. He's had MPs in his corner from the start, but having served as Boris Johnson's Chancellor for two years, he is most closely associated with him. Liz Truss is often compared to Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady. She's been emphasising traditional conservatism to mop up votes on the right. Sunak and Truss pull neck and neck with party membership, so this will be a close one. The countdown is on until the 5th of September when the next Prime Minister will be announced. The head-to-head contest likely to become an even bloodier brawl. Jake, who will be left standing? At the moment, both candidates have about equal odds. But one thing is for sure. Neither had the proven campaigning credentials or political dominance of Boris Johnson. All right, Bianca Nobilo, great piece. Thanks so much. Coming up, inflation? What inflation? Ahead, the one group that's had no problem handling the higher cost of just about everything. Stay with us. 
In our money lead, you know, not everyone is having a tough time in this era of inflation. CEOs from nearly 500 of the biggest U.S. public companies gave themselves an 18.2% raise. That's twice the rate of inflation. This according to a new report from the AFL-CIO. Let's bring in CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz. Vanessa, the pay gap here is striking. It's astounding, Jake. And this is really what we're seeing here. We are seeing CEOs, on average, as you mentioned, take home $18.3 million. Uh, That was last year. That is 324 times more than an average employee. And when you look at that as compared to inflation in 2021, inflation last year, 7.1%. So compare that to what a CEO pay was, 18.2%, that's more than double. Wages for an average worker far below that at 4.7%. Now, Amazon had the biggest pay disparity between CEO and employee. CEO compensation for the CEO of Amazon, Andy Jassy, was nearly $300 million last year versus the median worker pay, just about $33,000 if you round up Look at this ratio. This is 6,471 to one. That is a huge, huge gap, Jake, between CEO and average employee at Amazon. That's astounding. Walk us through some examples of what some of these other CEOs make. Absolutely. So let's take a look at Peter Kern. He's actually the highest paid CEO on this list nearly $300 million in 2021. But the interesting thing is that his take-home salary every year is about a million, but he has so much of uh, Expedia stock. That's where you get the majority of that compensation. Andy Jassy, we just talked about from Amazon, total comp, $212 million, but his salary was $175,000. So you'll see all of these CEOs really own uh, a lot of stock in the company, and that's where they're going to make their money. But really just the disparity overall, 18.3 million, so much more than the average worker at these companies, Jake. All right, Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thank you so much. Enough melting to flood an entire state with a foot of water. That's the climate disaster happening near the top of the world. And the lead is there. That's just ahead. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, first on CNN, the president's son, Hunter, under investigation. Why the Justice Department may be closer than ever to filing charges against Hunter Biden. Plus, gruesome accounts of torture revealed by families of Americans detained overseas. One man wrongfully detained in Venezuela, beaten for days, put in a freezer for hours, even poisoned with carbon monoxide. And now families are making an urgent plea to President Biden. And leading this hour, punishing brutal heat. Cities around the world buckling under record-setting high temperatures in Europe. Heat alerts in at least 20 countries from France to Sweden, Portugal to Greece. The other terrifying threat? Fires, with more hotspots active in the last 48 hours. Soldiers and firefighters are battling to contain fires in Greece, Italy, and Spain's northwest. And in London, the fire brigade said it had its busiest day since World War II dealing with more than 1,100 incidents in that city alone. Here in the United States, an oppressive heat wave is spreading toward the East Coast. As CNN's Athena Jones reports, local leaders are begging residents to exercise extreme caution. 
I know it's hard where I'm from, but I, I, I just can't take it right now. More than 100 million Americans under heat alerts in more than two dozen states. Try to find a pool if you can. If not, try to stay in air conditioning. Dallas and Oklahoma City both forecast to hit highs above 105 today. You know, summers can be hot in Texas, but this is, this is uh, unlike anything that, that I've seen. The extreme heat is not helping firefighters in Texas who are battling brush fires. The Chalk Mountain fire burned thousands of acres yesterday, and a fast-moving brush fire in Palo Pinto County destroyed homes. Firefighters are asking people to be cautious. Be careful with sparks. Be careful with any kind of fire if you're outside. Follow burn bans. In Paris, Arkansas, some people still do not have power following strong storms on Sunday. The area under an excessive heat warning. It was miserably hot. I was up and down all night because it was too hot. I was sweaty. I sweat so bad. The heat also building in the Northeast. New York, Philadelphia, and Boston are expected to see a heat index around 100 degrees today. Uh, this is serious heat, and we're really concerned about those, particularly with pre-existing uh, respiratory conditions. Heat is the number one cause of weather-related deaths in the U.S. One heat expert says if you have air conditioning, stay inside. But if you don't? If they don't, to have windows open with a fan to cool off, their extremities, their feet, their hands, and cool, cool ice baths, put cold towels on the back of their necks, and to check on their friends, family, and neighbors. And there is no relief in sight. Around 275 million Americans expecting to see a high above 90 degrees. And more than 60 million people are expected to see a high at or above 100 degrees over the next week. How long do you think you can stand this? Uh, right here, about two more minutes. And here in New York, in addition to playgrounds with sprinklers, there are cooling centers set up all across the city. For folks who don't have access to air conditioning, public pools are extending their hours. Meanwhile, Governor Kathy Hochul says the state is in constant communication with utilities to make sure they can handle, that they're prepared to handle, the increased demand for electricity. Jake. All right, Athena Jones in New York, thanks so much. A stifling heat wave is also wreaking havoc in China, affecting nearly two-thirds of that country's population. The sweltering temperatures have also coincided with a rise in COVID cases there. As CNN's Selena Wang reports, this has made government-mandated mass testing all the more excruciating for Chinese and life-threatening for health workers working long hours outside in head-to-toe protective gear. Scorching temperatures sweep over China, turning mass COVID testing into a dangerous task. State media shows COVID workers collapsing on the job due to what the videos say are heat stroke. In eastern China, a COVID worker vomits on the ground as colleagues rush to tear off her hazmat suit. Unable to stand, she's carried away. It's a scene playing out across China. Fainting, falling crumpling on the ground, lying motionless, struggling to breathe. The COVID workers' long hours in the suffocating heat, made worse by their head-to-toe full-body protective gear. That is not water, according to state media. It's sweat gushing out of this worker's hazmat suit. The sweat pools inside the protective gear lining the inside of their rubber gloves. The surging temperatures coinciding with surging COVID cases. 
cities across China, including here in Beijing, require a recent COVID test in order to enter any public area. That means everyone, young, old and sick, all have to wait in long lines like these in the brutal heat. It's really hot. It's fresh and, you know, exhausting and you feel like and a lot of times you feel anxious because you have things to do. To survive, COVID workers are getting creative, hugging giant blocks of ice, placing them on their backs, laps, and feet. Colleagues rub ice on each other and tape ice-cold water bottles to themselves. Some authorities have now said COVID workers can wear PPE that does not cover their entire bodies. Dozens of cities have been experiencing record high temperatures. Last week, more than 80 cities issued red alerts, with some locking temperatures of more than 110 degrees Fahrenheit. In central China, a museum closed after the roof melted. In Nanjing, the city opened underground air raid shelters for people to escape the heat. Meanwhile, crops are withering and dying under the high temperatures. The soil parched and cracked. The damage to China's crop production threatens to push up inflation, putting more pressure on an economy already devastated by the pandemic. But in zero-COVID China, even healthcare workers hospitalized from heat exhaustion get a positive spin from authorities. This propaganda video shows government officials visiting COVID workers in the intensive care unit. While showing the motionless patients in bed, the video rallies people to work together for victory against COVID. And Jake, this recent flooding in China, this recent heat wave follows flooding in China recently that has displaced more than a million people. And things could still get worse. Officials say that they expect more extreme weather in the coming months. All of this is hitting a population that is already reeling from harsh COVID-19 lockdown. This heat wave makes it all the more suffocating for people that are sealed and stuck inside their homes. Jake. All right, Selena Wang in Beijing, thank you so much. Punishing heat waves are impacting the farthest corners of the northern hemisphere. Above normal temperatures have alarmed scientists in northern Greenland, where ice is melting at an unusually high rate. As CNN's Renee Marsh reports for us now, what's happening in these remote parts of the remote parts of the world will soon be felt in communities half a world away. Off the coast of northwest Greenland, the water is perfectly still, but puddling on icebergs indicate a transformation is underway. That's the sound of rapid melting, triggered by a few days of unusually warm temperatures. During CNN's first three days in northern Greenland, the temperature topped out nearly 10 degrees higher than normal. It's days like today, warm enough to wear short sleeves near 60 degrees in Greenland. It's a high melt day when it's this unusually warm, and it's also deeply concerning for scientists. It, it definitely worries me. We are at 67 latitude here on top of the world in North Pole. And we could just yesterday, especially not today, but yesterday we could wander around in our t-shirts. That was not really expected. It's uh, basically at the melting point today. As you can see, now I can make snowballs. 
At a research site in northeast Greenland, near melt conditions at an elevation of nearly 9,000 feet made what's usually a frozen landing strip inoperable. They have a problem when it's this soft as the surface is now. Climate scientist Aslik Grinstead tweeting, mini heat wave, negative 1.6 degrees Celsius in the middle of the Greenland ice sheet. Our planned planes are postponed because our skiway is not that good when it is this warm. Unable to fly out, the scientists passed the time playing volleyball in shorts atop the ice sheet. (laughs) Pre-global warming, Grinstead says temperatures near 32 degrees Fahrenheit at this altitude were unheard of. The National Snow and Ice Data Center tells CNN from July 15th through 17th alone, a melt surge in northern Greenland caused ice sheet runoff of about 6 billion tons of water per day. That's about the volume of 2.4 million Olympic-sized pools. Put another way, enough water to flood the entire state of West Virginia with one foot of water in three days. The amount of melt from the ice was was to us was very surprising because it was very warm day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could even hear the ice was just, uh, just melting in front of our eyes. Research scientists tell CNN this extent of melt in North Greenland this past week is quite unusual and will contribute to global sea level rise, which impacts coastal communities half a world away. The National Snow and Ice Data Center tells us that they expect another major melt event at the end of this week that will extend over much more of the Greenland ice sheet. And just as we're seeing in Europe and many parts of the U.S., Jake, heat waves as far as here in North Greenland will become more frequent as the global climate continues to warm, Jake. Those are some stunning images there. Renee Morris reporting from Greenland. Thanks so much. Parkland, Buffalo, Uvalde, Highland Park, how high-profile mass killings in these places may have helped change minds on guns in America. Plus, he's from one of the most powerful families in South Carolina politics and accused of killing his own wife and son. But will jurors see bias in the courtroom every time they look up? In our politics lead, Americans' confidence that society and the government can do something about mass shootings, is that a new high? Nearly 7 in 10 American adults say action can be taken that will be effective in preventing shootings such as the Uvalde school massacre from happening again. Now that same poll, which was taken after the Uvalde and Buffalo mass shootings, showing an increase in support for stricter gun control laws, a strong majority of Americans, 66%, say they favor stronger restrictions on gun ownership. That's up from 60% in 2019, and just below the high of 70%, which came after the 2018 Parkland school shooting. Let's bring in Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy of Illinois, a Democrat who's on the Oversight and Intelligence Committees. Uh, Congressman, what's your reaction to these new numbers? Does this encourage you to try to push for even more uh, legislation to address this issue uh, beyond what what passed and was signed into law a few weeks ago? Uh, Short answer is yes. And in fact, in our area, you know, the Highland Park mass shooting on July 4th, uh, you know, made my constituents and others uh, even more resolved to demand uh, legislation that would kind of go one step further beyond what we did in the Safer Communities Act, which was a good step, but now address the issue of access to weapons of war. In that particular situation, a teenager essentially was able to purchase uh, a Smith & Wesson M&P uh, 15 assault weapon 
Uh, MNP stands for military and police. And that AR-15 style weapon was able to kill and maim dozens in a very short period of time. And so they want to say, they want to um, see these types of weapons out of the hands of people. And that means either raising the age or banning the sale of these weapons altogether. A majority of Americans, 60 percent, say they disapprove of how President Biden is handling gun policy. Uh, why do you think that is? And, and are there any steps you would like to see the president take unilaterally? Well, I think that the, the, the president uh, has taken some steps and the Safer Communities Act is an excellent uh, example of bipartisanship in, in the service of investing in mental health resources, making schools safer, incentivizing states to adopt red flag laws uh, and, and more. But more needs to be done now. So, for instance, I think that the FTC should absolutely uh, go after these gun makers in the way that they market their weapons of war to teenagers and young adults. You know, oftentimes, just take Daniel Defense, for instance. Uh, Daniel Defense makes something called a DDM-4 assault weapon. And I pointed out at the last oversight hearing that they actually had a picture of a toddler carrying this AR-15 style weapon in in his lap. And so my question is, uh, why would a defense, I'm sorry, a gun maker ever market a weapon of war in that way? And now I think it's time for the FTC to go after these gun makers for the way in which they place these weapons in video games, like Call of Duty. Uh, they use social media influ- influencers to get teenagers to want to be like those celebrities. And um, I think that the FTC should go after them. Both uh, In both the Buffalo mass shooting and the Highland Park mass shooting, uh, the individual was 18 years old, uh, bought his gun legally, and there was reason to, for him to have been red flagged before. Um, but the community just didn't do it, whether law enforcement or teachers or whomever. Um, I don't think that you can get a federal red flag law passed anytime no. soon. But you can work with people, lawmakers in Illinois, to, to fix whatever went so wrong here, because police knew about this young man, um, and, and still they didn't flag it. And actually, the General Assembly is meeting to kind of reform this red flag law, but Jake, it all boils down to access. Uh, why should a teenager have access or be able to purchase an AR-15 style weapon? We should at the least raise the minimum age uh, for purchase. But I've also co-sponsored a bill to ban the sale of these AR-15 weapons. Um, And I think that it's time that we seriously look at that because in mass shooting after mass shooting, uh, we see the same types of weapons of war doing the same types of destruction that we saw on the 4th of July. This is a uniquely American problem that unfortunately happened on a uniquely American day, the 4th of July. Right, but of course most gun deaths in the United States are due to handguns, not uh, what you call assault weapons or semi-automatic weapons. Uh, Let me ask you, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on gun violence today. Officials from Highland Park, Illinois, came, including the mayor, who tells CNN that the Republicans on the committee, quote, mostly left the room while she was speaking. Uh, What do you know of that? What do you make of that? Well, unfortunately, there's kind of a see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil type of uh, approach by some of my colleagues on the other side. But 
these, these tales of horror that are um, unfolding because of these mass shootings uh, you know, have real consequences. In the 4th of July shooting in Highland Park, we have a two-year-old toddler, Aidan McCarthy, uh, whose parents were both murdered uh, by the shooter, uh, now orphaned, and is gonna be, he's going to be raised by other relatives. Or we have the eight-year-old, Cooper Roberts, uh, who's paralyzed from the waist down because a, 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 a bullet from the shooter uh, severed his spinal cord. Yeah. And the list goes on and on. And so this has, these mass shootings have profoundly uh, real consequences for real families and real people, whether it's because of the AR-15 weapons or because of the handguns that you talked about. There, for instance, I have legislation called the Cool-Off Act, which would actually uh, have a three-day waiting period for the purchase of handguns. It's been shown to uh, reduce homicides and suicides, um, and I'm hopeful to move that, but obviously I, I need some support from people on the other side of the aisle, and they're not willing to offer that support now. All right, Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, thank you so much. Coming up, a federal investigation that hits very close to home for President Biden, his son Hunter facing potential charges. The update on his case that you'll hear first on CNN. That's next. First on CNN, federal investigators are reaching a critical decision point on whether or not to charge the president's son, Hunter Biden. Sources tell CNN no final decision has yet been made, but charges could include alleged tax violations and lying about buying a gun when he technically was not allowed to because of his acknowledged struggle with drug addiction. The case is being investigated by the U.S. attorney in Delaware, who was appointed by President Trump, and President Biden did not replace that U.S. attorney because of this investigation. CNN's Kara Scannell and Evan Perez have details for us right now. Kara, let me start with you. Why do investigators need to decide soon on whether or not to charge Hunter Biden? Well, Jake, one factor that prosecutors are confronting is the midterm elections. And there are Justice Department guidelines about bringing any politically sensitive cases around an election. And those guidelines include things such as taking any sort of overt steps like an indictment or um, executing of a search warrant. Anything that could be perceived as putting a thumb on the scale, uh, they try to avoid that. So now current and former Justice Department officials say that that deadline is uh, effectively 60 days before the election. So that implies that there could be a decision soon about what steps they want to take, or they could decide to wait until after the elections in November. But Evan, President Biden, not to mention Hunter Biden, are not on the midterm ballot. Is there any indication that Attorney General Merrick Garland might buck this Justice Department norm or that this wouldn't be included? Well, you know, Jake, uh, we know one thing about Merrick Garland is that he is going by the book, right? Everything he does is by the book. And in this case, you know, as you pointed out, he's not uh, uh, Hunter Biden and certainly Joe Biden's not on the elect on the on the ballot. But, you know, we can look at previous years, previous years with uh, with congressional elections. Uh, for example, in 2018, we know that the Justice Department uh, brought cases in August of that year against uh, Michael Cohen, who was the uh, uh, the former president's uh, personal attorney, as well as as well as uh, Chris Collins, who was a prominent supporter of the former president. Uh, he was on the on the on the ballot uh, that year. So uh, there's a lot of uh, factors that the that these prosecutors are going to have to consider, including, of course, that looming is the next year. The Republicans already say that if they take uh, over the House, they're going to do investigations. They're going to do hearings about Hunter Biden. So those are all things that, uh, that are worth considering 
for prosecutors in, in the next few weeks. And Kara, the, the investigation started off pretty broadly, including possible money laundering, campaign finance and foreign lobbying violations. It seems like investigators have, have narrowed it down. Yeah, Jake. So sources tell Evan and I that the investigators now are focusing their focus on um, looking into possible tax charges and also possible false statements um, related to the purchase of a firearm by Hunter Biden. Uh, Now, this is still a fluid situation and no final charging decision has been made, but it's fairly common for investigators to look broadly at something and then focus on what their best evidence is and what they can prove before a jury. Um, So, you know, this is still something that is being discussed among the Justice Department officials, uh, but we, about our sources tell us they are nearing a decision. Uh, Now, Hunter Biden, we should note, has, you know, not been accused of any wrongdoing and he has denied any wrongdoing, saying that he thinks once the investigation is over, uh, he will not be charged with anything. All right, Evan Perez and Karis Canal, thanks to both of you. Let's discuss with my panel, uh, Paul, let, uh, who knows what's going to happen, right? But assuming that Hunter Biden were charged in August, which is a possibility, uh, with something, could that depress Democratic turnout, you think? No. <laughs> no. I mean, I wish the guy well. He struggled with addiction and, and, uh, and you know, I mean, he, he, nobody has charged him with anything. But this has been a Republican fixation to no avail. They've got no political gain out of this. I looked up Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin, a couple of months ago, was asked about mass shootings, which just interviewed uh, Congressman Krishnamurthy about. He said this, quote, before we pass anything new on guns, let's enforce the law we already have. Let's start with Hunter Biden. Like, what the heck? So it's, it's, a, it's a challenge for, for Hunter Biden. I, I you know, wish him well, but it's not going to be a political issue. I mean, it seems like, if anything, it probably energizes Democrats because yeah. it makes them think that it's political and that, uh, that Republicans are just going after him for that reason. I mean, I think you saw some of that with the investigations into Hillary Clinton. At least we can have confidence so that President Biden is not going to interject himself into this. He's not going to try to put his thumb on the scale of the Department of Justice. They are going to continue to conduct this investigation independently. We could not operate with that degree of confidence under the former president. So anyway, let's put a pin on it. We'll wait to see what happens and then we'll talk about that more. Ramesh, I I want to bring up an issue that's being debated on the Senate right now. Democrats want to codify same-sex marriage into law. Uh, Today, Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio called the Senate bill to do so, quote, a stupid waste of time. CNN has asked all 50 Republican senators, would they support this bill? Only four of 50 so far said they would. Um, Do you think that there will be 10 Republicans in the Senate, just as there were 47 Republicans in the House, to support this? And do you think it's a stupid waste of time? Uh, I don't know what, you know, partly because uh, the debate sort of ended when the Supreme Court made its decision in 2015. And I think a lot of these politicians haven't really been thinking about what their position on it is because it's been sort of taken off the board by that. Um, As for whether it's a waste of time, I think you can make the argument that Democrats are vastly exaggerating how vulnerable that Supreme Court decision actually is. On the other hand, that's not a justification for voting no you could, that's a justification for saying we shouldn't have brought this up. It doesn't tell you how to vote on it when it's actually up before you. You know, Jay, can I just say that quote from Marco Rubio? Um, I understand why, in a political context, he said that. And you he's know, up for re-election. Walking in the halls of the Senate, he's up for re-election. Yeah. But I couldn't help but think about how that would land in a household that is a same-sex married couple. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where actually this is the heart of their lives together, and. 
it really does kind of come across a bit callous, regardless of how you're going to vote on the issue. I mean, if you're going to vote no, then then fine, say so. Um, but I thought it was a little bit, especially, I mean, Florida, yes, has trended conservative, but it it is still kind of, it has swing state tendencies. And, and I, I don't think it, it would be terribly smart to forget that if you're Senator Rubio. And same-sex marriage is very popular with the American people as of now. It wasn't 10, 15 years ago, but it is now. It is. And, you know, the fact that he sort of flick, flicked this off, there's nothing, you know, stupid about it. This is gravely serious. Right. For a long time in this country, we took abortion access for granted. So I don't think, you know, it makes sense to belittle it at all. But it, what I did see, though, I think is sort of characteristic of something that I often see in Republicans is that sometimes it seems like they like to be contrarian for contrarian's sake. What is the real benefit politically to aggressively, you know, uh, going against this issue right. at this point in this in this day and age. Well, Seven, yeah. I'm sorry, sorry, no, go ahead, Paul. Seventy percent of Americans support gay marriage. Now, right. The Gallup poll. Fifty five percent of Republicans. But in the House, only 22 percent of Republicans voted for it. Apparently so far in the Senate, only eight percent of Republicans are for a position that the majority of their party and the overwhelming majority of their country support. So they're way out of step. And this is the sort of thing. Democrats can and should use in the midterms. Usually the midterm is like, let's have a brake pedal on the president. He's going too far. It happened to Clinton, it happened to Obama, it happened to Trump. Democrats are going to want to say, let's put a brake pedal on the Republicans. They're going too far. They're going to take away your right to choose. They're going to take away your right to marry. They're going too far. Well, but there has to, I mean, that will work only to the extent to which voters actually believe there's a real threat to same-sex marriage. And that's an open question whether they're going to believe that. Why would you say that they're, isn't, given the fact that we have seen a big precedent, Roe v. Wade, overturned, right. uh, that Justice Thomas, in his concurring opinion, said that Obergefell, the decision that, that, that's legalized same-sex, codified, uh, or legalized, rather, same-sex marriage, should be up for review, given right. it was based on the same argument. We have people like Senator Ted Cruz out there very publicly saying he wants... wrong. He, yeah, wa- yeah he, he, he thinks it should be turned over because he thinks it should be a state-by-state decision. Um, why, I, I, like, I'm, I'm legitimately asking why you would think it sure. was, it's, uh, it's not really at risk. A couple of things. One, uh, most, the, so Justice Thomas is one justice. He says that the decision should be reconsidered. He also suggested a possible alternative basis for reaching the same conclusion, just abandoning substantive due process using the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Second, the fact that 47 Republicans in the House have voted for this suggests that it's not the same sort of issue as abortion. You are highly unlikely, I think, to get a case wind its way up the courts and create a live controversy that requires the Supreme Court to revisit this precedent. And I think that's one of the big differences. And then finally, Justice Alito's opinion in Dobbs, he goes on and on repeatedly. He says, look, there's a potential life issue when it comes to abortion that's an interest that is weightier than the interests that are at stake in the argument against Obergefell or against some of these other decisions. And that's why this is going to be a different kind of analysis. I, I guess so. I mean, I just I know a lot of people are anticipating that the U.S. Supreme Court, Supreme Court is going to uh, overturn the precedent that allows affirmative action in college admissions next year. That hasn't happened. I'm just saying, but the, the arguments will be this November. But a lot of people think that. I mean, I think this is a Supreme Court that is willing to review, uh, you know, precedents. No question. But the 
the case has to come before it yeah. in order for it to make that ruling. Um, Casey, today the, the former vice president, Mike Pence, was back on the Hill to meet with Republican he House was. members, conservatives, a Republican study group. They thanked him for his courage on January 6th. Some of the Republicans made references to a 2024 Pence presidential run. Uh, what do you what do you make of this? I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, Melanie or Melanie Zanona reported that she spoke with his brother, Greg Pence, that, of course, he would, quote, have to support Pence if he ran in 2024. Um, he did say 100 percent as well. Yeah, that's I, a I brother. Thought, that's yeah, a brother. I, I wouldn't support all of my brothers. If you, I would, if you, I would. I, would, I really I would have to, but I'd have to be dragged away. I don't, <laughs> anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, but look, it's clear in the wake of these January 6 hearings that while we don't necessarily know where voters are on the Republican side yet, Inside the establishment, there's a lot of interest in having someone other than Donald Trump be the nominee. And in fact, Eva, uh, take a listen to uh, Senate Minority Whip John Thune uh, talking to CNN about the 2024 presidential field and Donald Trump. He obviously has a very loyal base of followers, but I also think there are uh, a number of other uh, attractive uh, Republican, potential Republican candidates who uh, at some point are going to make their decisions about running or not. I mean, read between the lines there. Yeah, Senator Thune showing a tremendous amount of restraint there. But really, he's saying, please, anybody but Trump. Um, Listen, a lot of Republicans have positioned themselves to run. Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, Larry Hogan in Maryland, Nikki Haley um, teasing this week at that um, recent um, Christians United for Israel event that it it might take a woman, right? Teasing her own Tom Cotton has been to Iowa and he's planning to go to New Hampshire. Tom Cotton. Mike DeSantis, Mike Pompeo. It's a long list. It's a long list. It's a long list. And I think any Senator Thune, Senator McConnell, a lot of establishment Republicans would much rather have any of those folks on the ballot than the former president. And that's not to say that these candidates won't be running on many of the same policies, touching on many of the same grievances, but they won't come with the same baggage. Yeah, but you know what? Let's just say it right now, because if there is a field that is that crowded against Donald Trump, that is what is going to hand Donald Trump. There will not be a crowded field against Trump. If Trump runs, it will be a very... It will need to be one person... Or he will be the nominee. Thanks to the panel. Appreciate it. Trouble in the ranks, the recruitment numbers that are not adding up for the U.S. Army and how that could pose a national security problem for the United States. Stay with us. In our national lead, falling short, the U.S. Army is likely to miss its goal of securing nearly 40,000 new recruits over the next two years. And the reasons go beyond the labor market. It's also due to fewer Americans showing interest in serving in the U.S. military. Let's bring in CNN's Barbara Starr at the Pentagon. Barbara, you just heard from the Army about this. What are they telling you? Well, just within minutes, Jake, the Army has now issued a five-page memo from the top leadership about how serious it is they cannot get enough young Americans to join the U.S. military in this all-volunteer force. And the reasons are multiple. I mean, just let me mention that in this memo, they tell us that remote schooling during the COVID crisis, they believe, lowered by 9% the scores on the Army aptitude test to join the U.S. military. What they feel they are facing is a shortage of 40,000 recruits in the next two years. They will have to shrink the size of the Army. They simply will not be able to bring enough young Americans into the armed forces in the, in the U.S. Army. Just yesterday, the second-in-command of the U.S. Army, General Joseph Martin, talked about why this is happening on Capitol Hill. Have a listen. Right now, as we've got unprecedented challenges, 
with both a post-COVID-19 environment and labor market, but also competition, private competition with private companies that have changed their incentives over time. You've seen that with the various incentives that uh, companies have provided. And in this memo we're talking about that just came out a few moments ago, the top army leadership says, and I quote, we are in a war for talent. Jake? Going forward, what does this grim estimate mean for the overall size of the U.S. Army? Well, you know, it's that old saying, boots on the ground. You have to have a certain mass of force to be able to prosecute any mission that you are given. And this may get even worse because the U.S. Army National Guard and Army Reserve are facing the prospect that some 60,000 of their force may not be willing to get the COVID vaccine. And if they don't get the COVID vaccine, they will not be able to be part of the active force. They will not be able to be activated and go on missions. So this may be a lot worse in the months ahead. Jake? All right, Barbara Starr at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Turning to our health lead now. The commissioner of the FDA, Robert Califf, says things are getting better with the nationwide baby formula shortage, but that's not what the most recent data shows. Califf told senators today there's a, quote, robust pipeline of baby formula coming in. And he said production now exceeds consumer demand. We should stress there is still very much a shortage of infant formula in the United States. According to new data released today, more than 31 percent of powder formula products were out of stock last week. That's worse, not better, than a month ago. Coming up, an attorney from a powerful political family charged with murder. What he had to say in court today about the charges against him, that's next. Also on our national lead, a South Carolina judge denied bond today for the disgraced attorney Alex Murdoch. Murdoch appeared in court with a shaved head wearing clothes from his defense attorney's son, a white linen shirt, khaki pants, and Gucci shoes. He pleaded not guilty to having murdered his wife and his youngest son, who were found shot to death on the family's property in South Carolina in June of last year. Just to show you how powerful the Murdoch family has been in this South Carolina community, CNN's Diane Gallagher noted a portrait of Alex Murdoch's grandfather hanging in the back of the very same courtroom where his grandson appeared for his hearing today. Let's bring Diane in to update us on the case. Diane, what else happened in court today? You know, Jake, it wasn't just Alec Murdoch's appearance that was different. Unlike the past bond hearings that Alec Murdoch has gone through over the past months uh, since all of this began, we did not hear any evidence from the prosecution that would describe how officials linked Alec Murdoch to the murders of his wife, Maggie, and their youngest son, Paul. Instead, Alec Murdoch essentially pleaded not guilty when he was asked how he wanted to be tried. He said, by God and by country. And then for the remainder of the 18-minute hearing, both the defense and the prosecution pushed for a gag order, saying that they wanted to protect a potential jury from being tainted in any way and for a speedy trial. The defense saying that they'd like to start as early as October or November of this year, claiming that Murdoch himself wants the trial to get underway so they can get through it. And then authorities can search for, in their words, 
the real killer or killers. Now, the prosecution saying that they would prefer perhaps a January start. They also said that they had substantial evidence and all of it pointed to Alec Murdoch in this case. Now, of course, he and his attorneys denied that. Jake, it will be up to Judge Clifton Newman whether they will allow some of that evidence to be presented in secrecy before the trial and whether or not that trial will begin. He's a tough judge, Jake, and he did speak a lot about how this was of interest to the public. Do we have any idea what the motive is for Murdoch allegedly shooting his, his wife and son? <sighs> So not exactly, but I will say that we did get the first glimpse of maybe how they are building the case by something that the prosecutor said. Of course, Alec Murdoch's been in jail for months now on some of the roughly 80 charges he has already against him. Uh, some of those are drug related. Others are, of course, related to financial fraud, white collar fraud, allegations from some of his former clients and other victims that he essentially just stole millions upon millions of dollars from them. Well, the prosecutor today, when explaining some of that he referenced those allegations. I want to tell you what he said. He said, adding, I quote, a lot of that provides the background and motive for what happened on June 7th, 2021. Of course, that is when Maggie and Paul were murdered. It is not much, but it does offer the closest thing we've had to a hint as to how all the mystery and the allegations surrounding Alec Murdoch may connect to the murders of his wife and son. Diane Gallagher, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The surprise phone call today, just as the family of a wrongfully detained American in Venezuela made an urgent plea for action. Stay with us. The buried lead now, that's what we call stories that are not getting enough attention. A powerful moment for one American family with a loved one wrongfully detained abroad, according to the U.S. government. Matthew Heath was able to make a rare connection with his family today after more than two years behind bars in Venezuela. His situation so dire, he attempted suicide in prison last month. As CNN's Kylie Atwood reports for us now, a new mural in Washington, D.C. is trying to raise awareness for his case and so many others. Wide smiles, bright eyes, the cap of a Marine, a carefully kept mustache. These are the faces of 18 Americans detained abroad. Their faces now larger than life on a mural unveiled in Washington, D.C. I hope that this mural helps people see that my dad is a living, breathing human being with feelings. And he's not just a policy issue. Their families are pushing the U.S. government to do everything in their power to bring them home. My dad is losing his vision bit by bit because he doesn't have medical treatment. Is he going to be blind by the time I'm able to get him home? One moment of joy. If you saw us all running for the back of the alley. One family got an unexpected phone call. Matthew called just now. We were able to tell him what we're doing for him, for the other families, how hard we're working to try to get him home. Matthew Heath is an American detained in Venezuela who attempted suicide last month. His mother says her son will not survive if he doesn't get home soon. He was subject to suffocation. They put plastic bags over his face multiple times. He was then electrocuted multiple times. The mural's artist, Isaac Campbell, has one artistic vision for this emotional display. It's my, my biggest hope that some of these people can stand in front of their picture and say, I'm home. 
Now, Jake, most of the images in this mural are the last photo that these family members took of their loved one before they were detained abroad. So they have a very emotional connection to the image that they are seeing on that wall. The artist told us that he is thinking about putting up similar murals in cities around the country. And of course, one thing that he is hoping for is that President Biden visits this mural that is in Georgetown uh, just blocks from the White House. Jake. All right, Kylie Atwood with an important story. Thank you so much. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in the Situation Room. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.